This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Gabe Wrench. He is the co-founder of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and you may know him as one of the co-hosts of the show Cross Politic. But today on this show, we talk a lot about what happened to him in September of 2020 because he was arrested for singing psalms and hymns outside of City Hall in Moscow, Idaho, and he and other members of his church did this in protest of the unconstitutional COVID mask mandates that were happening at that time. So we go in the Wayback Machine to when all that was going down because, again, guys, we shouldn't just forget what happened in 2020, but we don't just talk about that. We talk about really how Christians can be pushing back against darkness that is happening in their governments. We talk about masculinity inside the church. We talk about what churches should be doing to focus on masculinity. We talk about basically the the ways that entrepreneurs and business people and educators, the way that they can almost build out their own ecosystems to have a place to fight from, because a lot of conservatives are in the fight now, but maybe they don't have a home base and they certainly don't have a place where, from where they can, you know, volley their own attack. So we weaved in and out of a lot of really great topics today, but I really, really enjoyed myself. So without further ado, let's get into it. Gabe Wrench, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, thank you for having me, Kyle. I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, it's cool because a lot of the stuff that you do is a lot of stuff that we do here on Undaunted Life, so covering faith, culture, and politics, but we'll get into all that. We need to kind of start, basically. We need a soft place to land. So you're a Christian, and that's a big deal, I would assume, for you and your background, but kind of take us through, because that's, you know, off air, I kind of gave you my, you know, 30,000 foot view story of how I became a Christian. So for you, how did you become a follower of Christ? And then we'll just kind of build from there. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, I grew up in a, a Texas, and it sounds like talking to you offline before we came on the show, that um, similar situation, you know, in Texas, everyone's yeah. a Christian. It's that Southern Christian culture, that Southern Christianity, and which comes with a blessing. Um, hmm. uh, but at the same time, uh, there's this cultural Christianity that can really make you lukewarm. And so that that's kind of where my Christianity was kind of baking in that in lukewarm cake. Uh, and God was kind. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family. I've always known Jesus. I never had a wild conversion story. But one of the things that was really helpful in my walk with the Lord is my dad got a job. He worked at Texas Instruments in Dallas, Texas, and then got a job at Hyundai Semiconductors in Eugene, Oregon in 97. And so I moved with the family up to Oregon. And so I went from Texas, where everyone's a Christian, to Oregon, where no one's a Christian. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, Eugene, Oregon is known for its, you know, uh, atheism, basically, or its lack of Christianity, that whole high I-5 corridor all the way up to Portland, Seattle, uh, and everything. And so that was uh, kind of the, uh, God really used Oregon to kind of wake up my faith. And uh, I remember in 97, that was the first time I really started reading the Bible and praying like I wanted a deeper uh, relationship with God, and I wanted to know more about him because I was challenged in my faith. I, I was surrounded by more of a godless culture than a Christian culture, and God really used that in my life to kind of wake up my faith uh, and everything. So God's been kind, um, not a not a perfect child at all, definitely um, have uh, a lot of repentance in my life, uh, but I never went through a big backsliding moment uh, in my life, so. Okay, so denominationally, where would you say that you've you've landed now for for everybody? And then I have I have questions from there, yeah. but don't worry, it's yeah. not going to be a big theological debate today. Yeah. No, I'll, but I'll take the theological debate. I have no problem. Hey, I know, uh, I know. <laughs> I I grew up. My, so I was born in. Uh, my dad was uh, by the time he had kids, uh, he was basically Reformed Presbyterian. You know, mm. John Calvin, theonomic, Rush Dooney, Bonson, kind of um, influences in his life. Now, him and my mom were, didn't really, I mean, 
my mom grew up Catholic, my dad grew up Baptist, but it was again that kind of Baptist Christianity where it's more more cultural than heartfelt. Right. And uh, so my dad became a Christian when he, I think he's like 21, 22, something like that. Led my mom to the Lord. It was really easy for my mom to go from Catholicism to the gospel because um, of all the guilt that kind of was bound up in Catholicism. And when she heard, you know, oh, you're saved by grace, it was really easy for my mom. Uh, and dad became a Christian, 21, 22. And um, so that's kind of the, the, and then through that, like he started tutoring. He's in living in California. He found Greg Bonson there, Rush Dooney there. Um, and he worked at a, a good Christian bookstore uh, uh, where he was able to get a hold of actually some really good Christian books. And that really had a big influence on his life. And then, uh, uh, so I basically grew up in a kind of reformed Presbyterian household, uh, Westminster Confession, that kind of stuff. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about that because, again, like I told you off air, I didn't grow up in church. And so I started going to First Baptist West in Lawton, Oklahoma, because it was like the closest church to us. It's where my friends went. It's where the cute girls went. But as I've gotten older and, you know, with Twitter being a thing, these interdenominational fights, which we've always had. So that's not like a new thing because Twitter's a thing. But I feel like it causes a lot of non-Christians to be like, look, they can't even get their own house in order. But specifically with Catholicism and Protestantism, and perhaps you could even bring Orthodox in here, Mm -hmm. there are people that I listen to and respect and like for the most part, like John MacArthur, who say, yeah, all Catholics are going to hell. And I'm just like, you know, that just kind of takes my breath away because, you know, it's it's a tough pill to swallow, but I guess talk to me a little bit about that because you know, a lot of your reformed Presbyterian types, like those are the guys that are throwing their IPAs at people as they're, you know, waxing their mustaches and they can, they can be really aggressive with everything. But tell yeah. me a little bit about that because uh, I, I like it to a degree cause I'm, I like fighting, but then to another degree, it's like, ah, oh, are we really getting anywhere? Yeah. I think several issues are brought up in that question. Um, one of the reasons, so I, I host a show called CrossPolitik.com, Jesus is Lord Over Politics, and our tagline is Fight, Laugh, Feast. Mm-hmm. And and we, we really like that tagline because we think it kind of embodies where the church needs to be at. We need to fight well together. Uh, we need to feast well together, and we need to laugh together. Uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, feasting, God prepares a table in the presence of our enemies and, and fighting. We need to iron sharpens iron, and that fighting not, not only needs to happen with the darkness out there, but that fighting also needs to happen within the church. We need to we need to sharpen each other's iron, and we need to grow. One of the um, things that had happened over the last, you know, so I'm 43 years old, 44 years old, and I I never really experienced kind of a good fight and debate within the church very well. Uh, there were it, not that discussions were happening or debates were happening, but man, kind of the really robust uh, disagreement conversations. You know why? Why do you baptize your babies? Why do you believe in believer's baptism? Are you post-mill, pre-mill? You know, those debates needed to happen, I think, in a more robust way. And so uh, that's how the church grows. That's how we become unified. Even if we don't even necessarily come to agreement on some of the, you know, are you post-mill, pre-mill kind of thing. But at least friendly fences make good neighbors. And to be able to talk about those issues well and then be able to buy each other a beer afterwards is really important. Um the uh i mean that's a lost art within the church and we really need Mm. to grow in that area and i think especially as men uh we need to learn uh to fight well together we need to learn to buy each other beers after the fight we need to learn to to spar with each other and and that i'd say some of the the biggest helps in my walk with the lord were, were those kind of challenges and even now I'm fully convinced on certain theological issues, you know, like I, I we in the Presbyterian world, we baptize babies. Um, I'm, I'm fully convinced that that's the way to go. 
Uh, but even when I get in debates with my Baptist brothers on it, it's really helpful to me. It, it, it helps me uh, better defend what I believe the Bible teaches. It challenges me. You know, if a Baptist brother brings up a good point, I've got to, I, I need to think through it. I don't just disregard his good point. Uh, so though, even even the fight internally is really good. Now, related to the Catholicism question, um, I think so. Baptists don't really have a view of the visible church. Presbyterians have this um, theological distinction between the invisible church and the visible church, and so we in that in that category of visible church, we would include the Roman Catholics as, and, and so we'd say as part of the visible church. The Roman Catholics are Christians, and and so we're kind of using that as as a as a noun, you know, as a kind of big C Christian, you know, universal church kind of thing. Right. Now that doesn't mean Roman Catholics are dealing with some serious idolatry within their within their practice and believe in you know faith and works in a in a confused way. Um, in the same way, Israel had idolatry in their midst, and they were they were still considered God's people. So we don't just disregard a section of the church because they got some major issues. We we don't I don't I don't call them non-Christian. I call them Christians, and uh, you know, Lord willing, someday there will be an ecumenical council in the church that will really deal with the Roman Catholic idolatry and problems. But I'm not gonna I don't I don't self excommunicate the church excommunicates. I don't self excommunicate people who call themselves Christians. The church should do that, and so um, I think that some of the there's there's a big distinction there in how Baptists view, you know, the Roman Catholics because what they say is there's only the invisible church, only those who are truly saved are part of the church, whereas Presbyterians say, well, we're we're, we're part of the covenant people of God, uh, un, unless we've been excommunicated out of the church, and so that's how we'd handle, you know, um, uh, Presbyterian, you know, Presbyterians, Baptists, you know, Catholics, that kind of thing. Uh, it, they're all part of the people of God, if that makes sense, uh, unless no, they've been excommunicated. No, I set you up poorly with a question that had about 17 different directions you could go, but you weaved yeah. right through it. Congratulations. But, you know, for me, growing up, or not growing up, growing up nothing, going to a Baptist church, then going to a huge non-denominational church for over 10 years, and now I'm at like a Bible church that was small when I got there, that's expanded, um, and it's I'm sitting under expository preaching every week. Like, it's not as exciting, but it's like, okay, well, I'm at a healthy church, which is a lot better than what most people can say. But I guess, which earlier you kind of gave a, a, a subtle commercial for doing jujitsu because men don't know how to spar because we don't spar. And so men that have never been punched in the face, men that have never been tried to be choked by a friend and then slap up and they can laugh about it later, we yeah. carry that aggression into our conversations with friends and we get too fired up and then we don't have a place for that outlet, for that energy. Mm -hmm. But I guess the sparring is there are certain people, Gabe, that they will they will create a salvific issue out of something that is not salvific. So your stance on old earth versus young earth, that is a no, we can't move past go until we, we figure this one thing out or you know whether or not we, we baptize babies or whether or not we, we do this or whether or not we do that, whether or not baptism is even essential. My wife grew up small town church of Christ. If you are not baptized, you cannot go to heaven. Like it's yeah. just, it's a different, if you go to a worship service that has an instrument, like yeah. that's, that's sacrilegious in mm -hmm. a way and so talk to me a little bit about healthy sparring because i feel like a lot of people they get really fired up and they can't draw the line on hey this yeah. is not a salvation issue in heaven we're going to clink our glasses together and say oh gabe was right or oh kyle was right like we don't need to fight like it's you know a life or death issue now yeah well uh, i mean proverbs uh, 
has a number of verses talking about this, but the one that's probably most known is iron sharpens iron. And, uh, you know, when brothers come together to, to disagree, to debate, to, to fight, the whole one of the goals of that is to sharpen each other in their ability to defend Scripture and their ability to grow in good and sound doctrine. I mean, Paul told Titus, like, you know, you need to be growing in sound doctrine. You need to be teaching sound doctrine. You need to get... Uh, and, and one of the ways to do that is is sparring with each other. Um, we've grown up in such this kind of effeminate uh, church culture where what happens is, is if you disagree in the church uh, or disagree with the elders or, or have a disagreement within your, within your community or, or whatever, you're considered divisive. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, you know, I, I brought up something to my church and, and their response, the leadership's response was I was being divisive. And, and of course, all this can be done in such a way where you actually could be being divisive. Uh, Paul addresses that also in his in his epistles. Uh, but um, just for the mere fact of debating, the mere fact of disagreeing, we should not be immediately defaulting to some sort of divisive, you know, um, uh, category for this person. It's really healthy for the church to constantly be challenging each other on growing in the Lord. Um, that's what good brotherhood does. Uh, you are not loving your brother if you are not challenging him. You are not loving your brother if you guys are not trying to actively grow in the Lord. You are not loving your brother, you know, if if you're just being kind of a passive friend. That's just not what friendship should look like according to the scripture. So we should be striving for a healthy environment of where open debate is acceptable and 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 good and healthy, and and that bleeds down into the family too. I mean, I, we talk. I talk with my kids all the time about difficult issues, and my kids ask me questions. My, I was talking about the sovereignty of God to my, my children um, uh, two nights ago, I think it was, and that's a tough topic, especially for the younger kids, where they're trying to reconcile, okay, um, how does how's God sovereign, and how does, let, how does sin happen in this world? How does sovereign God let that happen? Well, we had great discussions, and my daughters asked me a lot of questions, and, and um, that, that kind of healthy conversation and communication and debate within the churches is this has been such a big fault in our last 40 years the baptists haven't debated won't will refuse to debate the presbyterians the presbyterians refuse to debate, debate the baptists the 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 evangelicals refuse to have conversations with you know the baptists whatever presbyterians whatever reformed baptists non non-reformed baptists all those conversations need to be happening in our church and i, I think I, I i think the church would be much healthier if we were fostering that kind of uh uh, a culture in the church. One, Gabe, you mentioned iron sharpening iron. What people neglect to realize if they've never actually sharpened something before is when iron hits iron, sparks fly. Sometimes yeah. fires are created. It's loud. It's disruptive. It's not like two bottles of lotion hitting one another. Like yeah. it's a it's a rough experience. But you hit on something there that I wanted to talk about a little bit later, but we'll go ahead and hit it now. Just the state of manhood or masculinity inside the church. Um, I have a lot of theories as to why that is. I think uh, the Industrial Revolution had a lot to do with it because, you know, these men that were in the churches and in the homes were now all of a sudden underground and working these long, crazy hours to support their families. The World Wars took all the virile, strong young men away to some foreign battlefield for years, and some of them never even came back. And if they did come back, they were shell-shocked. And, you know, basically these effeminate pastors were in front of these congregations filled of women and children and the elderly and the songs started to become more effeminate the sermons became more about how you could believe in yourself and let's talk about you know lamb jesus instead of lion of judah jesus 
But what is kind of your overall take on the state of masculinity within the greater capital C church? And then specifically, how can we on a micro level, and I know it's taken me a while to set this up, but I get asked about men's ministry all the time, Gabe. And finally, I just started telling these people from churches that reach out to me, don't try to start a men's ministry. And they're like, wait, that's like opposite of what you say to do. No, no, no. I said, start with making your church man friendly from the sermon content to the key that the songs are saying in. Because if your church is a blinking neon sign saying you're not welcome here, then men will go somewhere else and do something else on Sunday mornings. They won't catechize their children. They won't do any of these types of things. So I know I set up a lot there, but take that question wherever you want to go with it. Yeah, I want maybe let's go back 200 years um, or 150, 200 years. I think the church and the leadership of the church are supposed to exemplify what it means to be uh, a, a man and right. what it means to be a leader in the church. I mean, God explicitly uh, delegated men to be the leaders in the church, to be the pastor, to be the elders, and to be the deacons in the church. And and so, but what? But I got a number of questions. I'd love to go back in time, you know, to the 1860s. And one of the questions I, would, I, I want answered, I don't have a good answer for it, is where was the church's teaching on the Civil War? Where was the prophetic voice from pastors about slavery? Where was the prophetic voice about some of the cultural sins of the time? Uh, you know, were pastors teaching on how to, you know, go to war, how to not to go to war, you know, how to deal with slavery biblically, how not to, you know, I... I I, I can't find much teaching on it. I can find a little bit from, you know, let's say R.L. Dabney maybe addressed a little bit, but he had some issues there too. Um, I uh, there, There's just no one really sticks out in my mind about what was the pastor's prophetic voice then. So I think uh, kind of the effeminization of the church started a long time ago. Um, and when we, when we, and I think part related to this is the church has never really talked and defined masculinity well and femininity well. And so there's actually some definitional teaching that needs to happen here. When we talk about effeminization, we talk about the word effeminate is talking about men using women's traits uh, uh, in their in their dealings, in their characteristics, in their life. Um, women's traits are great for femi- for femininity for women. Um, uh, men kind of borrowing women's traits, femininity, uh, uh, effeminacy, is 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 counter to God's created order and who God has created men to be. And and so what has happened over time is we've, and so let, let me just, um, so much here, but let me define masculinity. Um, uh, my pastor's got a great definition of this. Um, it's the glad assumption of uh, resp- sacrifice and responsibility. That's, that's masculinity. You're gladly taking on the willingness to be responsible for the things that God has called you to be responsible for, and you're willing to sacrifice for the things that God has called you to be responsible for. Uh, so for example, I mean, this that definition kind of is very broad, but it kind of flows out into examples like, um, I'm the husband of my family, uh, I'm the husband of my wife, I'm the father of my family, I'm the responsible um, you know, for the state and spiritual condition of my family. And and I need to be responsible for that all the way down to being able to willing to sacrifice my life for my family. Um, so, you know, in the same way of CEO is CEO of a company, he needs to be responsible for for being CEO, if he's president or governor of your state, he needs to be responsible uh, for the condition of a state. And it's kind of, it's like that covenant uh, representative responsibility, if that makes sense. Um, so a woman is not the head of her family. Um, Ephesians 5, the man is the head of the family. Uh, and so there's all sorts of masculine responsibility that 
that flows down from that. And, and so the church hasn't really defined masculinity and we kind of, if you, if you ask the church or if you ask someone in your church, okay, what's a good definition of masculinity? You might talk about, you know, brute strength or, or sacrifice or servant leadership, stuff like that. But it's like, it's like one of the central aspects of masculinity, according to the Bible, according to what God has described to men is actually responsibility to be masculine is to take responsibility for everything that God has put under your authority. Uh, and so the church hasn't defined these things very well. So what's happened over, you know, hundred years, uh, 150 years is we've, we've, actually created churches that are uh, uh, tailoring their worship to women, to more feminine kind of style of worship. And, and so you, you're going to lose men through that whole process. So how we've, so the, the masculine, the leadership is not masculine in the church. The leadership wants to talk about your heart and your feelings, which is more geared towards women. Uh, the worship service is geared more towards women. So we've, we've created this, this culture of where um, in the church it's been built around kind of the more effeminate side of of catering to the culture, and that's what I think created it, it's had disastrous effects. Instead of the church coming in and declaring God's word uh, in its in its unadulterated truth and structuring worship according to God's word, instead of turning the lights off, instead of bringing in um, smoke smoke machines and all all this stuff. Uh, we actually need to be declaring God's word in a way that's actually very masculine, very truthful, very, and, and then from that flows out the rest of kind of the culture of how things should be structured and built around it. So, I mean, there's more we could, there, there's other directions we go, but I'll, I'll stop right there. Well, certainly there's more directions we can go, but the overall reality is that <clears throat> masculinity is not taught in the church. Headship is not taught in the church. Most men are more than willing in modernity to acquiesce to the dictates of their wife and to take, I just today, like I was at the barber and, you know, he was kind of talking about how he kind of parented his, his young child. You know, he got stern with his young child and his wife in front of the child was like, hey, wh why would you do that? That's kind of scary. That's kind of angry. And I said, look, your wife cannot parent you like that in front of your children, because what a lot of men will do is they'll deal with that maybe a couple of dozen times. And then finally they'll be like, you know what? Screw it. You can be their parent. Like you can be the solo parent. I'll be over here getting ready for my next fantasy football draft. I'll be over here watching porn and jerking off. I'll be over here, you know, getting ready to go to the driving range. And that's the, the big difference for a lot of men is they just throw their hands up and say, fine, the culture doesn't want me. Fine. I'll disengage from culture. The family doesn't want me. Fine. I'll disengage. The church doesn't want me. Fine. I'll disengage. But yeah. I think the downstream consequence of that, Gabe, is we see a complete lack of boldness in the face of the predations of a dark and satanic worldview that comes from the, the pride agenda, <clears throat> the LGBTQ pride thing, uh, everything that comes downstream of critical theory, whether that's critical legal studies, uh, critical race theory, things and that, that sort. And then back in 2020, whenever you had the predations of a totalitarian-esque government trying to force things down on a populace and make them do it based on literally nothing, which is probably a good way for us to go to September 23rd of 2020. Um, and, you know, we'll talk about your arrest. Uh, so spoiler alert, guys, Gabe got arrested, but we'll talk about your arrest in the aftermath here in a bit. But go ahead and take us back in the to the Wayback Machine. Give us an idea of what was happening on the ground in Moscow, Idaho, before this incident on September the 23rd of 2020. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I don't think anybody should forget what happened in 2020. Nope. Uh, the government shut down uh, your churches while pot shops were open. The government shut down your churches while strip clubs were open. The government, you know, uh, it, when COVID happened, 
uh, I was in, living in Moscow, Idaho. I remember March 2020, uh, our mayor. So I, I'm in Idaho, which is uh, I'm in Moscow, Idaho, excuse me, which is a blue dot in a red sea. Uh, state of Idaho is overwhelmingly conservative and Republican, but my town, it's a college town, about 20,000 people, and it's run by a liberal cult, basically. I mean, mm. it's, 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 I'm not, that's not a pejorative. I think it's actually pretty accurately describing what's going on here. Our mayor, uh, I think it was like March 20th or March 25th, something like that, in 2020, shut down the businesses in downtown and used the threat of the force of the police to keep everything shut down um, without. There was even there was no cases of of COVID in town at all, so even before there was one case of COVID, our mayor freaked out and shut down downtown. Um, while literally that same next couple of weeks, uh, he would go out and play golf five miles outside of town and drink beer with his buddies, where the edict didn't apply. Right, just insanity. And so uh, I actually inadvertently um, March 11th, I signed up to run for county commissioner because our, our county had raised taxes four years in a row. I, I tried for six months to try to find someone to run for county commissioner and no one would. So I was just like, all right, I'll run. And so that was before the shutdown. That was before COVID was really a thing. That was in March, early March. And then uh, when our mayor shut everything down, all of a sudden I became the anti-shutdown candidate. And, and so I, I was at odds with our city, um, even though I was a county candidate, I was at odds with our city. Uh, from the jump, I led open up business rallies. I kind of became this political figure uh, against the shutdown. And and then in addition to all this, our church, the way we protest in our town is when the city does something, when our liberal cult does something crazy, we just go sing psalms and spiritual songs and hymns in downtown for 20 minutes and then we leave. It's We aren't bringing Molotov cocktails to the protest. We aren't staying there for three hours for the protest. We just make a point. We go sing psalms for 20 minutes and leave well the uh shutdown went through various phases the governor was involved in our shutdown also in idaho and uh july 2nd our city council passed this resolution where if you were standing outside you had to wear a mask if you couldn't stand six feet apart from each other just a outdoor crazy emergency health resolution and uh where you either had to wear a mask or stand six feet apart and so the police would walk with clipboards up and downtown making sure everyone was standing six feet apart or wearing a mask and uh, my community didn't really do uh, participate in that and we'd go sing psalms uh and uh protest the mandate not stand six feet apart not wear a mask in downtown and the city council kept renewing this resolution every every 30 days they'd renew it on march 23rd this gets us to march 23rd so they've been doing that all summer March 23rd, uh, actually 21st, the city council renewed that health emergency order uh, to January 5th. So they got past the 30-day thing. They said, let's just bring this order out four months. And so my pastors were like, well, let's go protest. Let's go sing psalms. And this time, let's go to City Hall parking lot on Wednesday. So two days, Monday, it was the, pat- the resolution was passed. And then on Wednesday, we went to City Hall parking lot to protest and sing psalms and when we got there this is like 5 p.m after everyone's kind of done with work we got there 5 p.m on september 23rd and the city the mayor and the city supervisor had paid city staff to clear the parking lot and to spray paint circles six feet apart so they could objectively say oh they weren't social distancing setting us up and all that stuff i remember walking up in the parking lot there's about a couple hundred of us walking into the parking lot to sing and looking at all these polka dots, it looked like some polka dot game would, was, was happening yep. or something. That's what it looked like to me. And I realized, I was like, oh, those circles are for us 
to stand on so that we could be objectively six feet apart. And the cops are lined up against the city hall parking lot. Like there's like, we're going to run city hall or throw Molotov cocktails at city hall. Something I, 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 it was just insanity. So we started singing Psalms and they came up to my, the cops immediately approached my mom uh, because they had to approach a woman first because they're cowards. Uh, and they asked, are, are you with this man? And my mom said, this is my son. And so, you know how COVID works, like family doesn't pass COVID. And so, uh, it, we were legal for some reason. I don't know. I still don't know why that that was the case, but we were legal. Me and my mom stand next to each other. Uh, and then I put my arm around my buddy, Tyler. And I said, this is my friend, Tyler and officer Casalt, the officer that, that arrested me, he said, give me your license. And I said, no, I'm exercising my first amendment rights. Uh, which is an oath you swore. You swore to defend my First Amendment rights against the mayor. And he asked for my license again. And I said, officer, you know you're wrong. You swore an oath to defend me. He asked for my license again. I said, I'm not, I'm not giving it. And then one more time, I think it was four times, he asked for my license. And, and of course, he wouldn't talk to me. He, you know, he logically couldn't process his oath and what the mayor wanted him to do. Uh, and so uh, he arrested me. He had to take my hymn book away. Like, I remember, like, that's the most eerie moment like when he's taking my hymn book out of my hands to handcuff me so i got i got handcuffed uh and then i went to jail that night i was there for about three or four hours another one other couple was arrested along with me rachel and sean bonnet and uh and so we got out three or four hours later and my 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 producer our show and, and a host with me he said we got to go live right now and so i walked to the studio as soon as i got out of jail that night i walked to the studio and we did a show live um, about my arrest and what happened. That show went everywhere. President Trump ended up retweeting my arrest. I mean, it just blew up all over media. And it was shocking. I mean, like, you Google Google my name in the arrest and you'll watch the video and you'll see all these people singing, raising their hands, worshiping. And we embodied the First Amendment there. It was really interesting because we're singing and worshiping. We're petitioning our government, uh, which is in the First Amendment, right? We're gathering and assembling, which is... So the whole First Amendment we are exercising and the cops and the city violated our first amendment rights in the name of their emergency health orders. Uh, I won the criminal complaint against me. And then just this week I signed the final negotiation. We won a three-year lawsuit against the city for violating our first amendment rights. And it's been a national story on and off for the last three years. And it's also setting a lot of precedent, I think, for how uh, cities are not allowed to take away your first amendment rights during COVID. So it's actually a really important case, I think, nationally for what's going on and everything. So that's kind of the gist of the story. Uh, but I was a, I served as a deacon at my church. I was a political figure. Uh, and, and then of course, uh, um, you know, in my city and then of course my work on cross politic, uh, just, uh, so I felt like as, as a deacon, as a man of my family and as a political leader, um, I needed to be standing up for my city, uh, and taking responsibility for the lanes that God had given me in, in those moments. And, and it had a, a very, um, huge impact on, on the city. The city never forced their health emergency order again from that point on, even though it was still live till January 5th. Um, and it had a huge impact. I think on, uh, you know, uh, John MacArthur and his church were fantastic during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, they, they waffled a little bit at the beginning, but then they repented, which is a very masculine thing to be doing, taking responsibility of your own sin and John MacArthur. And, and so I think what happened with me and John MacArthur had a huge impact on, uh, some of the kind of national stances uh, of what was going on during COVID in 2020.
I appreciate you getting into all that detail. I, I do want to actually um, camp out a little bit more on the legal side of things, the legal fight, because I did see the the recent headlines about how it had been settled and the numbers have been thrown out there and, you know, whatever. But talk to me a little bit more about that. And I guess let's take it from almost like a playbook perspective, because a lot of people don't have a show with a wide audience. A lot of people don't have political aspirations. Yeah. You got people that are just trying to get to and from work without dying, trying to keep it to where their family can live indoors and eat food and so when a fight like this comes to them when it seems like the government is pressing on them individually or when it seems like their their job is pressing on them like hey you have to put your pronouns in your email bio like those types of things most people are like well who am i i'm not i'm not ben shapiro i'm not dennis prager mm -hmm. i can't push back on this so get get a little bit more into legal fight because you didn't have to sue it made sense that you did, but you didn't even have to yeah. to go through all that. You could have just thrown up your hands and been like, well, they let me out, so I guess all is well. Yeah. Part of it was, you know, how Paul appealed to his government um, options. You know, I, I appealed to Caesar for my case. In uh, the same way, I think as citizens we have, uh, you know, legal remedies, legal appeal process that's biblical and that's allowable, and I think it's, uh, Christians should should do that. Especially when a city violates the Constitution, I think you need to do the best you can to appeal through the process to bring the city to at least admit its fault. And of course, you would love to see repentance. I think it's very important. A lot of Christians were 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 taught to be, you know, the the eleventh commandment. We're taught to be nice, and that's that's being nice is is not what we're called to. We're called to love. Uh, and love is not always nice. Love is truthful. Um, now, love is kind also, but love is not nice in this American, you know, bland sense. And so we're called to love. And I think one of the ways we're called to love is we're supposed to challenge when people are wrong. We're supposed to call people out on the floor when they're wrong. And so that that was my, when I run my criminal complaint against me, uh, I turned around and sued. But before I sued, I, I didn't want to sue my cops. I wanted to sue the city. The cops were were um, submitting to the city and they shouldn't have, they, they disobeyed and violated their oath. Uh, but I didn't want to sue the cops, but they ended up, I ended up including them in my lawsuit because I met with our chief of police and my arresting officer after my criminal complaint, um, after I won my cr criminal complaint and my arresting officer said, you know, if, if I had to do this all over again, I would do it the same way. That's what my arresting officer said. I remember walking out of that meeting with him and calling my wife and saying, um, hey, babe, we, uh, uh, I think I need to sue my, my police <laughs> force because they, they weren't being challenged. They weren't learning. They still thought what they did was right. And so it, it, the three-year lawsuit was a pain. Thomas More Society uh, took care of me. They backed me in all this whole process. Um, so there's a lot of uh, help there. But um, it, it, I think it, so there's a there's, – um, uh, I think I forget what which book and uh, which chapter in in First Kings. I think it's in First Kings or Second Kings, where I think it's actually in Second Kings. First end of First Kings, I think is where it is. Um, it, the prophet hands the king a stick and says, "Strike the ground," and this is how God will, um, you know, how how God will defeat your enemies. Strike the ground. And so and so the king struck the ground three times, and then the prophet takes the stick back. I think and he says, "You fool." You only struck the ground three times. You need to strike the ground. You should have struck the ground as many times as it took. And God would have delivered you from all your enemies. And I think that's part of what Christians have. A part of our problem is we're, we do strategic blunders. 
where we, we don't know the art of pursual. When we get a victory, we don't know how to pursue to the full extent of the victory. And so that was kind of one of the principles that was driving me here is like, okay, we got a victory. Um, uh, I won my criminal complaint. My arrest went national. My arrest kind of embarrassed my city and what they did. Um, but I need to pursue this further um, uh, with the city. I need to strike the ground harder because I need to pursue victory further. And so that's why I did a three-year lawsuit against my city, federal lawsuit against my city, is to pursue kind of that that punitive side of how my city needed to learn. I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever get an apology from, from my city, but, I, but I, um, I did get a uh, lawsuit victory. And I think that's very important that, that Christians need to pursue, not just get one victory, but we need to pursue until we think um, justice is, is meted out as best as possible in this civil realm. So let's talk a little bit more about that. I think part of it, and I've talked about this a lot on my show, is just conservatives in general actually fighting back because what I feel like for a long time as conservatives, or you can say conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, it's like, we're going to be nice. Okay. Mm -hmm. The 11th commandment, as you said, we're going to be as nice as possible. And we're just going to let people step on us. And I've told people before, like, there's no biblical mandate to be a doormat, like whatsoever, right? right? Like you you can defend yourself, you can defend your family. It's kind of like being taught that you don't punch back until you've been punched. Like that's a good way to get knocked out. Because like if you get hit on the button, you're gonna you're gonna be sitting there on the ground because ah oh, well they entered my space and they had that look in their eye, but I you know my mom taught me that I'm not supposed to throw the first punch. Yeah. But I feel like conservatives now are throwing the first punch. You have conservatives that are that are going above and beyond. Like you know you can talk about a Matt Walsh with the Daily Wire with what is a woman with going to state houses and doing those types of things, and I feel like it's a good uh, roadmap for Christians to be like look you can push back against darkness and not be a jerk like that is possible but what we're seeing right now is like look at we we get roe v wade overturned and it's like you know for every decade leading up to roe v wade the 70s 80s 90s and early 2000s it was you know stop killing babies and then we overturned roe and now pro-lifers are like ah it's a little complicated you know the the pro-life issue is a little complicated it's like but i think you said it right pursuing victory we don't know how to do that but i feel like we're getting better do you agree yeah, I would say I think there is a revival happening in the church in 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 pockets of, of our country. And I think that uh, part of that revival is in understanding kind of how God created male and female, how God created men to be masculine and women to be feminine, how God created us and our roles. And and so I think part of the part of the victory is there. And um it's the, the, I mean, I, I've been, like I said earlier, I've been alive for 44 years and the church has never engaged our political sphere very well until, and I, but I think there's some awakening happening. You saw MacArthur and how they did it. You saw, uh, you know, what happened to us in our community. I think there's a real important uh, vision that needs to, to, to be taught here. You know, for, for 40 years, the church said, Keep your faith in your house. Keep your faith in your church. Don't apply faith to politics. Keep a separation between faith and you know politics, church and state, all this stuff. And, and all that did for us was teach us not to love our brother out in the street, not to love our neighbor out in the world. Uh, and, and so, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck became our political pastors over the last 40 years because your pastor would not take the name, not take the word of the Lord and, and declare it into politics, would not take the word of the Lord and declare it into culture, would not take the word of the Lord and, and declare it 
outside of the pews of the church. And so we had this very impotent Christianity in how to handle our, our, our faith in the world. And so I think you're seeing a revival and a, and a, and a, re, and a reformation revival in po- pockets of the church. And I think this is one of the key areas where we need to see reformation revival is that the Bible not only applies to me and my heart, to me and my family, to me and my church, but the Bible applies to the whole world. If we believe Jesus is king, if we believe Jesus is truly king here and now, uh, then I believe Jesus is king over Biden. I believe Jesus is king over Putin. I believe Jesus is king of this whole world and every knee should bow and every tongue should confess and I should not separate my faith from politics, my faith from culture, my faith from what is going on in the world today. Okay, Gabe, let's actually, let's go deeper on that because a lot of pastors are worried about being political from the pulpit and not because they're afraid that they're going to violate some federal statute that'll make them lose their tax exempt status. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and again, I've already said, I like my church. I think my church is healthy, but last mm-hmm. year before the midterms, our pastor who, um, uh, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, you know, taught at Dallas Theological okay. Seminary, very well uh, liked and well respected, but I mm-hmm. am going to be critical of him, and I have been. Before the, the midterms, he said, make sure you vote on Tuesday mm-hmm. and make sure you vote biblical values. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That's mm-hmm. all he said. And I remember sitting there like, <laughs> wait, did, did he just move right on and get on into his sermon? Because dummies in the pews are going to hear vote political values and they're going to think to themselves, oh, I know what that means. Love your neighbor. And if my neighbor mm-hmm. just happens to want her body to be her body and to make the decisions mm-hmm. for her body, that makes sense. And so pastors, and I, I've talked to another pastor who I won't name, who had a local election in his area that went to the side of someone that is wildly anti-church, wildly anti-God, and is going to legislate in that way. And he leads a, a you know a church, and that the size of his church could have swayed this election in this local area. Mm. And um, and so pastors right now are kind of wrestling with, okay, how much do I use the pulpit for that? Because I've heard arguments before, like, look, Kyle, Sunday morning, that pulpit is not for politics. That's mm. you, what you're saying is a Sunday night issue. That's a Wednesday night issue. But when human flourishing and human life, image bearers of God, Imago Day, when that is at stake. What exactly are we talking about where we're like, oh, we, we don't want to talk about it on Sunday because people might get offended. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's because we've been taught a disconnected and ins- inconsistent Christianity. Um, it is inescapable that politics is religious in itself. Politics, um, uh, it's inescapable that laws are religious. All laws are reflective of some sort of religious belief, whether it's secularism, Christianity, whatever. Laws are just the external, as Van Til would say, laws are just kind of the external um, application of religion. That's all laws are. So yeah. the church has been stinted and, and taught a stinted gospel and a stinted view of scriptures uh, that um, tells you to keep the Bible out of politics, that keep the Bible out of your, you know, out of this world and that has just been so so disastrous uh, uh you know uh now you don't want the pulpit to be partisan and and uh but you you absolutely want the pulpit to speak into politics um you well know, so if, I, if i if i may just let me hop in there yeah. if you do that you kind of have to be because you can't in the modern democratic party that thinks that their mm-hmm. party platform is that you can kill babies for any reason at any point of the pregnancy and be paid for by taxpayer dollars. That is unfortunately a partisan issue. There is no yeah. middle ground. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and I'm I'm using the word partisan. Like not uh, like a Republican say, church. Like, hey, we're the Republican yeah, church or that, something like that. That's that's correct. So I absolutely believe um, my pastor has endorsed people from the pulpit. He said, hey, this guy's righteous. This guy's faithful. You should vote for him. That you know, this person over here believes in baby killing. <laughs> so I have no problem with that. I would want to avo- avoid maybe some partisan disputes from the pulpit. Uh, but I, absolutely, the the pastor should declare uh, um, from the pulpit God's truth in this moment in our culture. And sometimes that mean might mean endorsing a candidate. Um, you know, uh, but I would I would I think that's few and far between right now. I can see that becoming more and more of a thing as, as we move forward, possibly. But uh, the the point is that the 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 church, the pastor is is declaring the word of God. His job is to herald the word of God. His job is not to um, try to make the word of God palatable. He he should just be declaring it in all its raw glory to his church, to his culture, to his community, to to the political situation that we find ourselves in. And either that, either he teaches his church how to apply the Bible to politics, or the world's going to teach them. Right, like it's inescapable. He, he, the sheep are learning from somewhere. Absolutely. The kids will be catechized somehow and somewhere, and it's not going to be by people that you would prefer. But let's let's take that even deeper. So Mm -hmm. we talked a little bit earlier, Gabe, about how Christians are trying to be nice. We're trying to be accommodating. But the problem is I feel like Christians are being accommodating on issues that don't have a middle. And Mm -hmm. so let's use the the most extreme examples, uh, trans ideology and abortion. There is no middle ground on abortion. There is no moderate position on abortion because it's either your pro-life for the entire type of the time of the pregnancy or your pro-abortion that there there is no middle ground saying that well i don't want abortions past 12 weeks okay but you're still pro-abortion okay so there's no middle ground there and also the transing of the kids specifically transgender ideology for anybody but specifically with children for a seven-year-old girl to say that they're a boy and you say no there is no middle ground on that right. we're not going to raise her as a society i'm not going to acquiesce to her parents requests on her pronouns but the church is like <clears throat> how many christians do you know that will not only use the the chosen name of somebody, which I'm fine with. If I know you as Nick and now you're calling yourself, uh, you know, Nancy, fine, I'll call you Nancy, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to use she, her pronouns for a man that I know yeah. to be a man. Yeah. But so many Christians are like, you know what? I don't want to needlessly offend anybody. And so I'll just use their pronouns because, you know, I can't, how can I share the gospel with them if I don't even use their pronouns? It's like, oh my gosh, do you hear yourself? Mm-hmm. But talk to me a little bit more about that because some people think like, Kyle, you're just, you're looking for a fight. You're just trying to be a jerk. But it's like, no, we're either going to believe in capital T truth or we're not. We're either going yep. to believe the truth of the gospel and the dictates of God therein, or we don't. There is no yep. middle ground here. Christians have bought into the secular myth that there is neutrality, that there is a neutral playground that we can all meet at. And because they've bought into that secular myth of neutrality, all the whole uh, attempt at secularist secularism at liberals to push some sort of neutral ground is so they can eventually win that neutral what what so they can eventually run the play of of gaining all the power. Right. And so what that secular, what it does to Christians is we bought into this, this myth of neutrality and we think, Oh, everyone can just get along in the public square. We can all have our God in in the public square. But all that is doing is it's buying time for the liberals It's buying time for the new God to come into the system and take over and take power and control. And so that's, that's what's happened is we believed in this myth of neutrality and we believed in this, you know, thou shalt be nice. And we believed in the, 
the oh we need to separate the church from state faith from politics all that stuff and all that did was allow for the secularists to run their play the godless ideology to come in and declare their own god over the system so there's now every country every political movement every you know society has a god whether that god is the god of the bible or that God is the God of secularism. It doesn't matter. There is, it's inescapable that there will be a religious God over the state, a religious God over the country, a religious God over whatever movement is there. Uh, and so why would I not want to declare the Lordship of Christ over our country? If I think God's law is the best law for a thriving society, why would I not want to declare that into our culture? Why would I not want the, the gospel which I believe is the, is the best for everybody. <laughs> uh, why would I not want that to be the prevailing ideology of our country instead of secularism, which believes, you know, this, this Christians have allowed prayer to get pushed out of public school. There's a, this great quote from R.L. Dabney back in the 1870s where he said, the public school system is going to push out catechisms, prayer, and the Bible out of, out of public schools. There'll be a day where you don't have prayer, Bible, and catechisms in public schools. And we think, there, uh, you know, our first initial response is there was catechisms, Christian catechism being taught in the public schools. That's incredible. We, I remember, I remember when see you at the poll was a thing, when going to pray at the poll, because prayer had been pushed so far out of the public schools. Um, and, 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 and it's because we believed in this like myth of neutrality. And then over time, secularists pushed catechisms out, pushed Bible out, pushed prayer out of our public schools and and Christians are still participating thinking like, Oh, we still have a place in this world. It's like, no, we don't because we believed in neutrality and we got suckered into it. How come our country currently right now is made up of about 40 million evangelicals, you know, 40, 50 million evangelicals, you know, different definitions at different levels, but at least some sort of confessing evangelical make up 40 million of our country. Um, how come the LGBT crowd, which might at best make up five to eight million people in our society, how come the LGBT crowd is getting all their laws passed, getting all their presidents voted in, getting all their secularist agenda um, pushed through our society? It's because um, Christians have been so suckered into the soft fit, uh, Christianity, we've been pushed into the corners, and the 10 million are chasing the 40 million. When Israel went into the promised land, uh, Moses warned Israelites saying, if you obey God, this is in, you know, chapter 28, 29, several times he says this, if you obey God, your thousand will chase their 10,000, your small numbers will chase their big numbers. And if you disobey God, their small numbers will chase your big numbers. And that's where we're at right now. The small, uh, agnostic, atheist, godless ideologies, the godless worldview the godless people who are who are pushing all this trans um, uh, 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 morality on our society, they're chasing the forty million, and it's because we've 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 neglected God, we've denied God, we've gone we've gotten idolatry all caught up in our churches, and and the 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 small godless people in our society are chasing the forty million right now. And we need to, re that, that should cause us to want to repent of some serious sins that are in our ranks. I think you're absolutely right. And I was reminded of something that uh, I was, someone else reminded me of, but Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller, 
he has a very famous quote where he was basically talking about if you're a Christian evangelical and you actually believe this stuff, you actually believe a Middle Eastern yep. Jewish carpenter, you know, uh, died and rose again and all that. It is hateful for you not to tell people about that. So he's mm -hmm. like, I can at least respect an evangelical that has the balls to share the gospel with me mm -hmm. versus somebody else who just ha has no has no appetite for it. But mm -hmm. I think that also speaks to the creation of different ecosystems where not only you can exist but also you can push back from that you have a fortress from which you can push back from and for you yep. guys you created the fight laugh feast network cross politic mm. the show is part of that yep. now what some people will say is oh yeah well you're just going to create your own network because you couldn't hack it on the others but then other people realize, well, okay, uh, if I'm going to get shut down for my opinions in certain areas, then why in the world would I build a house in there? Yeah. So, like, for instance, right. I'm not depending on Patreon or YouTube because yeah. I can say, yeah, girls can't become boys. And all of a sudden, YouTube gives me three strikes in 90 days. There goes yeah. my YouTube channel. Patreon just turns me off entirely and won't give me access to my emails. That didn't yeah. happen to me because I could see the writing on the wall before that ever happened. But talk to me a little bit about Christians like you that are entrepreneurial, that are business people like you and your team over there with Fight, Laugh, Feast and with CrossPolitik mm. in creating these areas where, hey, we're not only just going to have some place to live, but we can actually, you know, we, we can shoot some arrows from here as well to get some stuff done. Yeah, so we st I started CrossPolitik with uh, Pastor Toby and Chocolate Knox in 2016, and, and we did it because um, for the last, you know, like I've said, you know, last uh, 40 years of my lifetime, the church had not done a good well, a good job teaching and discipling its people on how to apply the Bible to politics. And kind of, and that was in 2016 when it was only podcast. Podcast, we weren't really on YouTube yet. A year later, I think we got on YouTube uh, and so forth. Uh, and then over time, we started realizing one of, I think, the key principles that particularly men need to understand is that they need to build their life in such a way where they're anti-fragile and it's hard for the powers that be to take them down. Uh, and that includes, that, that, that principle, the anti-fragility includes, I think, even dealing with sin in your own life. When you're living in sin, when you're caught up in sin, you're fragile, you're susceptible. Guilt can get you, the world can get you. You can be brought down. So be anti-fragile in your own life first. Confess your sin, get rid of your sin, give it over to Jesus, confess any sin you need to, to your wife, to your family, to your friends, whatever. Like get rid of those, those levers that can ruin your life. And then in the same way, you need to be anti-fragile in how you build your businesses, how you build your, your career, how you build your, you know, your church, your community, and so forth. And so that's, a, I think, a big principle of cross-politic. And that's why we started building what we call the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Uh, it's a podcast network that we're turning into a TV network over time, uh, and it's it uh, it needs to be anti-fragile. So we aren't dependent. We're on YouTube, but like this last year, we've probably been suspended every other month from YouTube or had a show deleted from YouTube uh, this last year. So uh, we've been basically been canceled by YouTube or censored by YouTube since 2020, since COVID, and uh, it you know so social media is kind of a difficult path, um, and so we got to build our own platform, but. What better way to be anti-fragile than building your own platform? We also air on, we're on national, we're on direct TV on NRB. We're on uh, Xfinity on TLN. So we have some other pockets, but we could get kicked off there too. So build your own platforms and it, to be as anti-fragile as possible, kind of take control of what you are able to as much as possible. And so that's the idea behind the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And our goal is over time to create Christ-centered content for the whole family. So we don't want to just be cross-politic, kind of a talking political show. We also want to create Christ-centered content for the whole family because um, Christian church 
has this all ties into what we've been talking about with discipleship has not done well in discipling its people over time. In fact, the church usually uh, disciples you or you, you go to your church on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday you're out in the world. You're, you're sending your kids to public school. There's no disciple Christian discipleship there. You're, you're engaging in a way that just only discipleship you get is maybe on Sunday. And if, and it's not even that good of discipleship. So networks are actually, I think a very strategic play. I think Christian education is a very strategic play. You need to be having your kids in Christian schools or homeschooled. Uh, and I think networks are part of that kind of similar play. If you're building a community, one of the things you need to have is a Christian school or homeschool co-op program in your community because that's how you discipleship disciple your children Monday through Friday or Saturday throughout the week. Okay, not just Sunday. Um, and and I think part of this kind of a similar play is a network, um, Christ-centered content for the whole family. We want to be in people's houses from 7 a.m. to 10, 10 o'clock at night, from cartoons to sitcoms to hunting shows to cooking shows to nightly news every night. We want to be that your Thursday night family entertainment uh, because what happens is Christians are pretty good at, let's say, funding like a Kirk Cameron movie or something like that, and we'll put in $3 million to fund a movie, uh, and then Sony gets all the profits. And then that movie might ha- last for six months or maybe 18 months, might have a, a very stinted impact. But a network is constantly in people's houses every week, creating relevant content that's to that week, nightly news that's to that day, uh, and discipling people over the next 40 years. There's a reason why Fox, you know, Tucker Carlson was getting 5 million views a night before he left. But that was because Fox, I mean, Tucker was a talent there for sure, but Fox had been working on building that audience for 40 years. And Tucker came in, of course, he drew some more people in too in that audience. Uh, but I think the long-term play of what a network could do for a discipleship is so powerful and so important. And so that's kind of our, our, our it's a big goal. Um, I mean, it's probably a $15 million fundraising uh, round uh, uh, goal. I mean, I want to have journalists in every state. I want to have a, a whole network of Christ-centered content. I want to have cooking shows. We're, work, we're actually working on a cooking show and a a, uh, a TV show called ThisAmerica.tv. You can go to ThisAmerica.tv um, to find out more about it. Ba- basically, it's a micro dirty jobs meets Christian economy kind of show. Um, I'm the I'm the micro figure in that in that show, and so I think there's a lot there that needs to happen. And I think networking and network concept and media through that avenue is really important. We're coming in. Sorry, one. I know I've been talking here, but we're coming into a situation where I think this is a very even more strategic play, and the timing is right. Fox, CNN, all these legacy media um, uh, uh, networks are losing people's trust at massive scales. Tucker got kicked off Fox basically for telling the truth. Uh, and uh, But also, they are coming into a situation where they're, they're not getting the next generation. Right now, Fox's audience is probably average age of 15 older. I was on Laura Ingram. I was on Fox and Friends with Pete Exeth. Um, I know that audience. Uh, and so they are not getting the younger generation to tune in. The younger generation is tuning in on social media, tuning in on you know uh, uh, apps and, and all that stuff. And so we're in a situation where I think our network can really take off given kind of the state of, of things. It's going to be about a 20-year fight, 20, year hard, 20 years of hard work. But I think we're in a fantastic moment for kind of building this kind of infrastructure that's not beholden to the powers that be. We, Me and you, we could not be doing what we're doing right now, uh, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, all the gatekeepers were the networks and 
and the cable television pipeline and all that stuff. For us to be able to spin up our own podcast and our shows and grow to the extent that we've been able to has been a massive blessing from God. It's like Gutenberg. You remember when the Gutenberg press happened? It made it impossible for the Catholic Church to quash distributing Bibles in the common language to its people. Well, that's what kind of what podcasting is like. That's kind of like what Media 2.0 is like, where it's making it possible. The gatekeepers can't hold everything down. And that's why Joe Rogan gets the following that he gets. That's why Tucker is able to be like, hey, Fox, the gatekeeper cancels me. Fine. I'll go do my own thing. So I think we're in very exciting times for the gospel to go out in a way that the gatekeepers can't even control all they're trying very hard to right now. Yeah, there there are a lot of gatekeepers, but the, the gospel can't be held down. And, you know, God can move mountains. We got to bring a shovel. And it's guys like you and organizations like the ones that, <clears throat> excuse me, that you're a part of that is helping to build that for the next generation because it's not just about building it for us it's building it for someone else to build upon I, I talk about this all the time think about your favorite theologian or your favorite researcher or favorite philosopher they may have spent 40 years trying to figure out something and then they mm-hmm. figure it out and then they write about it and then you can get 40 years worth of work and a weekend's worth of reading and then build on top of that person that's why we're yeah. doing things like with cross politic with right. undaunted life a man's podcast to be able to correct these things to where there is something to build on for the future. But Gabe, we're out of time, unfortunately. I'm so glad that we were able to talk and weave into and out of a whole bunch yeah. of other different subject matters. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Yeah, yeah. I'll just say one more thing. If your audience is interested, we got our Fight Laugh Feast conference in uh, Kentucky in October. You can go to fightlaughfeast.com to find out more. And it's a Christ-centered, family-oriented conference. We're actually taking it to the Ark Encounter this year. It's a uh, The Ark Encounter is amazing place. Ken Ham raised about a hundred million dollars to basically build this life-size replica of the Ark. And we're using their event center. We're kind of taking over the, the campus and we'll have a couple thousand people at the conference. Uh, Lord willing, we're, we already have more signups than we've ever had at our conferences. And I mean, our conferences, they start off, they're family oriented. The, the topic this year is the politics of six day creation. Um, it, we start off with beer and worship, beer and Psalms, what we call it, uh, and you know, jumpy castle for the kids and punch for the kids. It's that's how we kick off our conference. Just big fellowship time of, of, uh, beer or d'oeuvres punch for the kids, jumpy castle and singing, uh, praises to God. That's how the conference kicks off. We also have a pre-business conference at this year at the conference. We have the CEO of Gibson go. That's going to be there. The CEO of Maddox, uh, David Bonson's going to be te- teaching at the um, uh, pre-business conference called Business Makers Conference. And then we the, the the calendar, the schedule structured so you can go visit the Ark. The Ark is like this life-size replica, and it's amazing. It's a historical, spiritual, uh, scientific experience. We're pulling our kids out of school to come with us this year at the conference because I want them to experience it. You know, the, the, the historical truth of the ark, the scientific ramifications of a worldwide flood, and the gospel presentation is amazing in the ark because you have salvation and damnation in that biblical narrative. It's fantastic. So I would encourage as much of your audience to get out there. It's a family-orientated uh, conference, and it's just uh, great content, great speakers. And being at the ark encounter this year, there's an outdoor park. There's a petting zoo for the kids. There's all sorts of stuff. It's a really cool family experience this year. Guys, that link will be in the show notes. And, you know, beer is okay, but could we do whiskey in worship? Is is that an option? Do, Man, can that be on the menu? I would, lo- I would love to. Uh, part of the problem is, is we we build in. We, we don't make anybody pay for the alcohol that night and the hors d'oeuvres and the food and the punch. So it's a very expensive um, four-hour event uh, to kick off the conference. But it's, it's worth it. We lose. We, we build it into the t- price of the 
ticket and we take the hit on it because we really want families to come together and, and worship together and fellowship together and, and do it around, uh, you know, fun, fun with food and beer. I mean, like, like who, who doesn't want to have fun, you know, just, in that just, environment? Just throwing this out there to you. You'll be in Kentucky. You're going to be near-ish to the Bourbon Road. I'm sure there's a few people up and down the Bourbon Road that wouldn't mind donating a couple of cases to make sure whiskey and worship yeah. could go down. I'm just saying, Gabe. Yeah. I'm just saying. But Gabe yeah. Rich, thank you for coming on a Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you for having me, Kyle. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Gabe Wrench. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got three links for you today. I've got a link to Gabe's website. I've got a link to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, where you can get also the information there for the thing that they have coming up the conference later on this year in Kentucky, and also a link to the Cross Politics Show. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah